So this evening, because we're going home tomorrow, I wanted to speak about a subject that uh, contains within it some ways that we can bring our practice from here, from this retreat, into our home life and point out to you some of the ways that um, we've learned here as we've been practicing. For example, renunciation, generosity, loving-kindness, how some of those and, and more, more than that uh, can really benefit us in, in our time of, of uh, practice at home. So this talk is about that one particular um, quality that we've been uh, practicing here more than any other, and that's the quality of renunciation, of being able to let go. So renunciation isn't a very popular subject in our society because we hear a lot about the pursuit of happiness, just going for profit, status, getting and achieving material goods and um, things that kind of add to our sense of self. And uh, I came across a cartoon strip quite some time ago that gave some pretty pithy perspectives on renunciation. And every once in a while, it's very interesting. I I kind of wonder if some Buddhist is writing this cartoon strip, Uh, Hagar the Horrible. Have you read that one? Yeah. And so in this cartoon strip, there are four frames. So if you can try to picture these four frames. The first one is Hagar climbing up a steep mountain, huffing and puffing. I mean, the, the incline was, is, is really, really steep. And the second frame is when he meets a wise man at the top. He doesn't actually get to the top, but he, there's enough um, space between him and the wise man that you can see uh, that He's got a long white beard and white robes, and he's sitting cross-legged like he's in meditation. So Hagar calls up to him and he says, Oh, great sage, please tell me the secret of happiness. And uh, the great sage calls down to him and says, Simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. And then Hagar says, Is there anybody else up there I can talk to? That isn't, it isn't very appealing, is it? So, but actually, all of us and all of you have come here because we know the value of letting go. And we know that we've come here in order to hopefully have enough courage to face what's coming up so it can be seen, acknowledged, and um, there's an ability to see its impermanent nature, which is in itself, you know, letting go, to be able to see the impermanent nature of everything. So anyway, I'm adding a subtitle to this power of renunciation, and that is the happiness of letting go. So this practice of renunciation really has two sides to it, like the front and the back uh, side of one's hand. And the the first side is um, letting go of something, something material in its grossest form. Uh, But it can also mean letting go of what we discover in our practice, in our awareness practice here, maybe a moment of bliss that we're clinging to, an idea or an insight that we keep hanging around and actually because we're not letting go of it, We can't see anything else but that. We just want to experience it over and over again. There might be an attitude of mind, a habit pattern that no longer serves us that we're hanging on to. Um, A wrong understanding about something. You know, for example, a really major one is that it's permanent. Something is permanent. You know, we can hang on to 
uh, people in our lives. We can hang on to material things. We can hang on to our children or to a job or something. And over and over again, we learn the lessons. We see that it's not possible. But still, there's kind of like that attachment there to it. And so we hang on to opinions and judgments of ourselves and others. Um, and that's really painful. We kind of see that it's, that is a pernicious thing in, in our lives as human beings. We cling to the past. We're, we can let go of the past, but it's the clinging. We can uh, sort of enjoy what we've had in the past and um, honor it, but we cling to it sometimes. We cling to what has happened in the past, should be happening now, and it's a great source of suffering for us. So we cling to planning because we have so much fear of the present moment. Sometimes it's got to be controlled. We have to know what's happening in the future, so we end up obsessively planning So these are things we all know in our own ways and different iterations of it that we've come here to see clearly and hopefully to have less and less holding on to, less and less clinging to. Uh, So in the deepest sense, renunciation sees a danger of craving and clinging to any experience, to any uh, material object, to any person, and it sees the wrong understanding and the views that go along with that. It sees how we don't benefit from clinging, but still there's this very deep habit pattern that the Buddha said was you know, part of the Four Noble Truths, that um, it's, it's very true that it is the source of our dukkha, of dukkha, of suffering, So here's something that was um, uh, meant to be part of my talk on craving, but there was so much I left it out. So I want to read this uh, part, what the Buddha talked about in terms of when there's craving, clinging, holding on, attention, what does it lead to? And um, so he was speaking with his monks at the time, and he said, Monks, I shall teach you nine things rooted in craving. Listen and attend carefully. I shall speak. What are the nine things rooted in craving? Because of craving, there is pursuit. Because of pursuit, there is acquisition. Because of acquisition, there is decision. Because of decision, there is desire and lust. Because of desire and lust, there is selfish tenacity, that clinging. Because of selfish tenacity, there is possessiveness. Because of possessiveness, there is avarice. Because of avarice, there is concern for protection. And for the sake of protection, there is the seizing of cudgels and weapons and various evil, unwholesome things, such as quarrel, strife, dissension, offensive talk, slander, and lies. These are the nine things rooted in craving and I'm adding, and that lead to agitation and suffering. So we see the the difficulty of that, the the ways that it leads over and over again to feeling like we're kind of in this prison of habit pattern and how to get out of it. So it's, it's hard to see, it's hard to admit to, takes a lot of humility and courage, but we get to see those habit patterns in a a time like this. Um, As usual, Mark and I were talking about, you know, things like this, the Dharma, when when we have our little eating times of meeting, and he said something like, um, and Mark, you uh, you can chime in if you want, that we, we ought to have on, a, on the doorstep of our you know, meditation centers and urban places and forest places like this a sign that says, 
uh, something about when you come in this door, you'll really be facing a lot of pain. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't want to make it any secret or kind of cover it up that you're going to really experience deep peace. So I'm just kind of saying um, what Mark described. And it's true that, you know, this practice is a practice of revealing what's going on deep inside that we don't usually have the wherewithal or the interest or the time to do it because we're so busy in survival mode when we're, when we're at home, attending to things that need to be attended to, our responsibilities, our family, our jobs, our, our children, our elders. And so when we come to a place like this, we have to be able to uh, face the fact that we're we're going to come in and things are going to be revealed. Layers are going to be revealed to us and these are our habit patterns that we don't see so clearly when we're at home. So it's always kind of a shock to us. It's kind of like one sting after another. Um, So it's, it's not... Most of the time, if we look at how much time we spend seeing what goes on, most of the time, over half, if not even more than half, it's a, it is a lot of dukkha that we're seeing. And maybe some of that time is just times of deep peace and times of like an opening of contentedness or happiness. And we see the power of that, the power of letting go of those habit patterns and what we open to when, that, when the, those moments of letting go happen. And that's what keeps bringing us back here, that potential to really experience that depth of that kind of bliss, that kind of deep okayness with ourselves. So... Um, The other side of renunciation is that letting go into something beneficial like peacefulness and contentment, like generosity and goodwill, compassion, a clear sense of the view of reality. And this is empowering us uh, when we let go of those habit patterns of just seeing the same old things come up that don't serve us. And we're able to have a clear view of how things are and, and have an intention to be in alignment with that. We're not all the time, but at least the intention arises within us is that's where I want to align my life with, with that clear view. So this word in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddhist teachings was preserved in, Pali, that word uh, renunciation is nekama, um, uh, N-E-K-K-H-A-M-M-A, nekama. And a more complete understanding of that is to go forth or to go out sometimes. And it's like going out in, from a place that is confined and dusty. That's what it, it's described as in the scriptures going out from a place that's confined and dusty, like a prison, and into a wide open space. So that's what going forth means. And that kind of renunciation, in its deepest sense, is renouncing greed, hatred, and delusion, and purifying the heart and the mind. So it's more about gaining a sense of clarity and freedom, where we can see reality as it is and deal with it and have develop all the courageous and beautiful states of mind, the wholesome states of mind that can actually face what needs to be faced, all the things that have put up, been put under the rug of delusion and ignorance. So those moments that we have in our lives of deep relaxation um, and a sense of being okay, having a sense of well-being. This is what we know we we come back for over and over again because we remember that. It's almost like 
um, you know when um, when a person gives birth to a child they say that there's this sort of hormone or whatever it is that allows you to forget all the suffering of that childbirth and I, I gave birth to four children and really I, I do remember some of the you know the times when I'd be screaming or something um, or like you know calling for the mother Mary to help me but it's that that's wispy that's very wispy compared to the actual birth and the actual holding of my child each of them and just seeing what was going around me at the time um, having given birth to one of them at home where everybody was standing around even the other children and you know I remember um, the youngest child's older siblings they bathed her in in water and and really you know were able to touch her and everything so there's that you know sense of real connection and love and um, it, it's so beyond that the suffering it's hardly remembered well the same thing goes on in in a retreat like this or a time when we're really facing the reality of that suffering that comes up so I, when I go home after a retreat, I don't remember that really awful pain in my body so much. I remember the, the high points, you know, of um, the beautiful sense of peace or contentedness that was there, or a sense of just walking um, outside in, in cold, cold snow when I've been in, on the East Coast and practicing there in the wintertime. And I, I don't like cold weather so much because I'm an island girl, they say. But um, just being able to take in the beauty of that and um, how my mind was seeing the peacefulness of the moment outside of me, inside of me, those are things that I take with me that I remember. So for most people it's like that. I mean, maybe there's you know, uh, one of you feel differently than that, but um, I bet that that's what brings most of us back, that we see the potential for us to have a clearer mind and a more purified heart. So it's more of a sense of gaining uh, than it is a sense of uh, losing something, of giving up something. So in our practice... We allow awareness to see more clearly. I mean, we should come to the, we should be able to come to our sitting cushion and have the intention of really facing what needs to be faced in that moment, of really understanding that, you know, both peace and suffering could come, and we need to be ready for both. Sometimes, when it's been really, really hard for me in a sitting or a particular time in the retreat, I try to remember what one of my teachers said to me once was, when you go to the sitting cushion next, where, where you normally uh, experience all of that kind of deep suffering that goes on, see if you can go with the intention to actually open to it. Because most of the time we're, we're coming kind of expecting something. You know, we're, we're, okay, maybe this time it's going to be uh, that wonderful moment again. You know, like I had the last sitting. One of, um, one of the yogis and one of my friends actually from Minneapolis, she had this great quote, and it's um, something like this. There's nothing like a good sitting in the morning to ruin the rest of the day. <laughs> you know, because it's like we're always coming in, waiting for that. How was I sitting then? And, oh, I just had a cup of this kind of tea. Maybe I'll have that kind of tea again. And um, I'll be sure to sit in my chair because it's next to this person who has good vibes. And, you know, just kind of trying to control it and making everything like we want it to be. But it isn't like that. So if we can actually go to our sitting cushions knowing that we're going to have to face what needs to be faced, then it's not 
all tightening and squeezing around like, oh, ah, there it goes again. But it's more like, okay, here it is. Am I ready to face this moment and be, be willing to see the impermanent nature of it and um, not hang on to how we think it should be in that moment? So there's letting go of um, attachment to material stuff, to views and opinions, to being right. Um, but uh, this is not a loss, this letting go. I mean, we, this is great to let go of that suffering. And why do we think we still need to just kind of hold on to it? Um, it's usually because we're trying to find a way how to fix it, or we're running away to something more pleasant instead of actually just facing it and kind of coming close to it and touching it with awareness, with kindness. So in reality, letting go of suffering is gaining peace inside, of course. It's a very deep fulfillment of our lives as human beings. And... um, when we're relaxed and even restful around that, we have a sense that we're in alignment with how things are. You know, this ability for us to face our lives in a, in a quiet way where we see it so distinctively and it's, it's terribly unpleasant to be with, It's not that we're going to go home with a greater sense of peace, but mostly we have to take in the realization that we're going home with a greater sense of ability to be with that in our lives and to not flinch at it and to actually accept that, okay, this is part of life. And um, maybe we'll know how to navigate that terrain a little more when we go home. For example, bring awareness around it. Because when we're really, when there's real true awareness, there's a sense that it doesn't have to be locked up or uh, kind of attached to the idea of being a victim of suffering. But there's this understanding that there can be a sense of empowerment in uh, relaxing in the awareness of it. So it's always about kind of relaxing back and noticing what's going on so we're not so attached to it as as a kind of identity of who we are. We're we're always trying to, in the practice, we're always loosening that identity. And we come to see it for ourselves. I mean, Mark and I try to put a lot of words around it, but your own practice is trying to explain to you and trying to describe how, how is it Can you see how it is in this moment? And for you to realize, for all of us to realize how we get attached, how we cling to the habit of suffering. It's it's such a habit pattern. And, And I'm speaking to you from a place of experiencing that. I'm not totally free from that. I mean, I wish I could take my own advice. A lot of times, you know, I'm just speaking to myself up here. (laughs) hopefully you know I'm learning those lessons too and you know I don't want to be that um, kind of that kind of fake humility that I don't see the strength of of my own heart because I really do but it's not always there It's, it's hard for me and I think that's why I can relate a lot to when I hear it going on out there I can actually, in my own way, put myself in those shoes in some kind of parallel way. So, um, yeah, we're finding deeper meaning in life. A lot of our practice as yogis is seeing that it's, this meditation is not just about finding peace. It's like accepting suffering and knowing how to navigate it. That's actually about 90% of our retreat is really understanding how to navigate that, that, those areas of ter- inner turmoil or the relationship of the turmoil outside of us, around us, um, 
how we can relate to that in a more peaceful way. Because we're not going to stop it out here. That's been happening from time immemorial. And, and even in different world cycles, they say it's been happening. You know, when the description of different world cycles comes up in the scriptures. But that doesn't mean that we, we don't do anything about it. We do do the best we can. But that attachment, that clinging, that craving to how we think it should be even out there is a real source of suffering for us. If we can do good without attachment to result, then that would be the purest way we can handle our lives as human beings. Because then we're not always so disappointed or discouraged with how things are. We carry on with the understanding that we're going to face how things are. And there'll be moments of peace within that. So we find a deeper meaning in life. And our values change. We discover different values that we might not have had before. Just this part of what I've been saying. Maybe we valued peace, and that was like the highest thing. But yes, that's true. But can we have peace within us, even though there's turmoil outside of us? And if we don't have peace... Can we know how to handle it? Can we know that we can navigate that terrain? So, in this simplicity of life that we've had here, this kind of relative simplicity, I mean, it's still complex, you know, being around a lot of people and um, learning how to be in seclusion while we're around a lot of people. There are complexities that arise, but for the most part we're living in a, in a world of relative simplicity. And um, we learn a lot from being able to have a sense of the kind of uh, culture, to understand the kind of culture we're in, is to let everybody have their space so that we can really look within. So that's why we have this no-talking business. Because, you know, it ruffles. It ruffles another person. It ruffles us when we have to talk as a yogi to another. So it gives us more opportunity to like, just be with ourselves. When we see something going on, we don't have to go talk about it to somebody I mean, you might, you might do that in terms of your one-on-one check-ins with us or group check-ins, but it's more all about what was going on inside rather than what was, what's going on outside. So we're able to see uh, things that are going on that maybe we didn't see before. And I realize that even when uh, some of you come to talk with us, just by talking it out, there's some realizations of like, you know, you say something that maybe you've never seen before, but you're, because you have to think it out in a way where you're telling somebody, you release some deep understanding that you never had before. And so that's the value of being able to be quiet and yet being able to have some time to talk with someone that you might trust. I've always um, loved this, these words of Ryokan, one of those um, great recluses of the, of the forest and poet. He says like this, My hut lies in the middle of the forest. Reminds me of the times I've been here uh, these last 20 years. My hut lies in the middle of the forest. Every year the green ivy grows longer. No news of the affairs of man, only the occasional song of the woodcutter. The sun shines and I mend my robes. The moon comes out and I read poems. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find the meaning, stop chasing after so many things. So it's kind of the opposite of what we do in life. It, it's not like we're chasing after all our wants and, you know, we're, we're 
doing our to-do list all the time. And usually it's for a lot of good reason. You know, we're taking care of our business, our family business, our community business. We have responsibilities and we're responsible people. And this is a good thing. But I just might add that, um, you know, one of the important things for me in these last years, you know, coming to a place of an age of, like, our age in this society of being retired and actually not being able to be retired yet. Um, But, you know, I've had this to-do list, like everybody does. But it became more important for me to make a not-to-do list. (laughs) You know, this long list of what I would have, um, it comes up in my eye calendar, you know, these are the things to be done today. And so I look at that list and I think, what could I eliminate? And really, it, it just becomes more important to have more space in my life rather than trying to achieve and attend to so many things. And what if I didn't do that? Who would care? If You know, a lot of things like, who would even care if I did that or not? You know, they're leading their own lives and... So I don't have to be running around doing a lot of things for others. And, um, of course, do what we can to help, but find the space, you know, where you can really, even in your daily lives, look inwardly and see what's going on in the mind right now in relationship to reading the news. Take some time to say, what's going on here? What can I... With what's going on here, is there something going on here in relationship to the news and what's going on in the world that I can let go of? You know, maybe it's a judging or criticizing certain people in political realms. And just, um, of course, seeing what's true, not denying that. But also, you know, the constant criticizing and... and um, kind of setting people apart. You know, there's this side of the political uh, kind of preferences and there is this side. And, you know, I find myself talking about things that, you know, like how can can actually people not believe in climate change? I can't understand Mm -hmm. that. And then I go into something more that... I, my mind really doesn't need to do, like kind of setting myself apart from different people who don't believe about climate change and not realizing our deep interconnectedness as human beings and that all beings have their own journey, you know, and I can't control the journey of others. So it's just like um, seeing what the inner realms are and knowing that, okay, no need for that. No need to do comparing or judging right now. It's just hurting my own heart right now. So it's not about deprivation when you think of renunciation. It's more about um, unburdening, if you can think of it that way. A renunciation of the different ways of greed, hatred, and delusion... Um, of the ways we hang on to things and people um, and ways that we think it should be. It's an unburdening. And that doesn't mean that we don't stand up for ourselves. I, I have something to say about that also later on. But it's, it's a gaining um, of something when we can, if we can see that, if we can let go of something, that we're gaining something on the other side. Like a, just like letting go of a task that might take uh, longer than, uh, you know, when I really look into something that I've taken on in life. This is this is just kind of uh, practical. Sometimes I take on tasks that I want to because I want to help, and then I realize that's way too much for me. You know, I really can't. I really can't take on that retreat right now because I don't see any space of rest 
in between this one and that one. And so I'll ha- I just call up and I say, you'll have to get somebody else because I can't do that. I really can't do that retreat. Now, why? Because I want some space. <laughs> I want to rest now. I don't want to do anything right now. And luckily in the Dharma, my Dharma colleagues say that's good. You know, they kind of praise that kind of, um, that kind of decision. And so it leaves me room for like just sitting outside on my porch and having a cup of tea and listening to the birds sing. That's really important. It's really, really important. So recently, um, this is just spaghetti mind again. Um, recently, I, I was noticing that my dining room table is just filled with papers and my computer's on top of there. And when I, in the la- last years, I've realized that I go to my table and I'm eating with all my papers, you know. So I decided I, I'm, I can't do that anymore. So I called in somebody to help me make a, a little space for me in another room, but that was going to take time. So I decided to make a space for me outside. And so, you know, in Hawaii, the weather's quite... Um, it's quite mild almost all the year. And so I made a little outside eating place for myself where I know there's nothing that's going to go on there, no papers, no computer, no cell phone. I'm just going to go out there with my cup of tea and my piece of toast or if I can eat a meal out there. And that's where I'm going to eat. And I just made it a really nice place. I bought new chairs and a little rug that goes outside and a blue tablecloth and things like that where this is my statement of I'm making space for myself and I'm not going to be just covered up in papers when I'm eating. So it's just things, you know, practical things that you may be able to do for yourselves, like really making space to just be with yourself and hear the birds sing and Maybe you think about what's going on in the world and you'll have a chance to notice inside what's going on in here in relationship to out there. That's a good question to bring with you as you go home. Just always turning inwards. What's going on in here in relationship to out there? And then really take a look at that and how even taking a look might unburden by just knowing it. I remember one time when I was in retreat, it was a long retreat, and it was in Burma, and um, it was muggy and hot, and I stayed there longer than the retreat lasted. The retreat lasted two months, and I was staying an extra month. And that extra month went into the really hot season. I think um, uh, Mark has been there in the real hot season and knows it's it's terrible. I mean it's like it's like you're you're enveloped in the cellophane clothes of a nun and, and it feels like there's just plastic right on over your body. I mean some of the robes I had to wear were made of polyester so not doesn't breathe and like the the um, neckline of the blouse is up to here and it goes down to your wrist. <laughs> you wear an underrobe and an outer robe. and um, So I was ready to go home one time. So I went to the teacher, and this is called um, the rolling up of the mat time. There's two major times it happens in, in practices. And this was the second time I was ready to go home. So I went to the teacher And by the way I walked in the door, he could probably tell what was going on. It was like I was ready to tell him something, and I wasn't like just with this movement and that movement. And, you know, so he started to chant something, and then the person, the the, um, translator, um, uh, translated what he was chanting. He chanted it. And then there was the translation. And the translation was this. If one sees that a greater happiness is found by letting go of a lesser happiness, the wise person will let go 
of the lesser happiness. So I knew what he was talking about. You know, like <laughs> the lesser happiness was me going home, and the greater happiness was continuing to do the practice. So remember the part that says the wise person will let go of the lesser happiness. So he said, Are you a wise person? <laughs> It's similar to how Manindra said, do you want to do this with wisdom or without wisdom? I, that must be something in the tradition. I don't know, but it's similar. So <clears throat> then I realized what he was saying, so I stayed, you know, till the end of the retreat. And that retreat turned out to be one of the happiest times of my whole life when I look back on that retreat. And somebody asked me why recently, and I just remembered that it was a time uh, when I was... Um, I, I re-remembered it, because I've, I have remembered this before. It was a time when I was simply... I, I came home from the... came back to my kuti from the dining hall, and it was time to wash my robes. So it was just... Wa- I washed the robes, and, and it was just doing it... There was nothing in the mind but just washing the robes. And I was noticing how it was in the mind. And there was, there was no extraneous thoughts. It was just like washing the robes, you know, doing that, just washing the robes, and then rinsing them, and then just walking over to the clothesline and just hanging the robes up the clothesline. And that was it. There was just that was happening. And I kept looking at the mind, is there anything? No, it was just that. It was just this movement and the knowing of it. And it was like... That was, you know, had those moments before, but mostly like in practice, in sitting practice, but this was a time in moving through, through the everydayness. And so this is a moment that I looked up and the sun was rising. And it was like, I never saw the sunrise like that. I mean, I live in a place where I could see the sunrise every day, and I do, mostly. And I thought, this is amazing, and I felt like a kind of happiness that wasn't, you know, all jumpy. It was just like really a settled happiness. It was wonderful to be able to feel that. And I realized that, you know, once again, that it's true. The teachings are true. So it, it did bring a greater happiness, you know, the, the realization of the possibility of that in life. So this going on retreat for us is such a radical form of renunciation in relationship to most of the world because we give up speaking, we give up entertainment and and most distractions, you know, most, the biggest distraction is having our food to eat and, and coming in for the Dharma talk is kind of the dessert of the day for most of us and um, we really simplify we simplify, we let go of the comforts of home, and we find the busyness of here. I mean, some of us, I mean, still get in the beginning, sort of feel we have to get busy, you know, do this, do that. My water bottle, I got to fill it, you know, that becomes so important and <laughs> overwhelming sometimes. Um, but we realize we don't have to run around like that in life, and so we can actually have the the possibility of having that same feeling of just hanging the clothes when you're hanging the clothes, of watching the moon when watching the moon. That's all that's happening in that moment. So, of course, uh, when we take the precepts here, we really refine our understanding of letting go. You know, we we let go of harming through speech and behavior. So, in our speech, I mean, that's mostly taken care of because we're silent when we're here. A lot of people come to their first retreat and think, oh, I wonder how I could just be silent, like even for a weekend, for nine days, for, you know, months at a time sometimes. It's just um, impossible to, to think that that's, that could happen. But actually, when people go home from a retreat... Not all the time, but a lot of times I hear how wonderful the silence was, you know, how just being in, the, in, in a place where 
you didn't have to worry about speaking to somebody or about, you know, passing by somebody and having to say hi. Isn't that a relief? Or, <laughs> or um, you know, having to answer somebody because the culture here is that we don't have to look at each other. We can just keep our, ourselves to ourselves. And so it's really wonderful for me, because I speak with a lot of people a lot of times, to be able to just put my head you know, in front, put my eyes in front of me, and just to walk. It's such a relaxing place for me to just be able to walk and not think that somebody's going to approach me. So, um, taking the precepts here of silence and not harming through uh, our behavior even, and, and when we know that everybody's doing that and we ourselves are practicing that, that's a really deep letting go to do that. And just to have the intention to not harm is a huge letting go. I watched with, with um, you know, a lot of gratitude and a lot of metta how some of you would get up from the sitting and you'd be holding a piece of paper and I kind of knew you were taking a bug out right? <laughs> if I did open my eyes. And so just watching you do that, you know, the care that you've taken with not harming. And many, many other ways that we've done that here in our speech and behavior. So we experience how it allows us to be more clear and present and connected with something deeper within us. And the wonderful result of that is we find out there are moments when we find out that this moment is enough. Have you, any of you experienced like looking inside and seeing there's nothing you want right now? Raise your hand, let me know. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think we feel, <laughs> we could feel complete with our um, offering to know that. That those moments can be more and more for you. Of course, you'll bring up the things that you need to do, like you need to go to the bathroom or, you know, got to eat now or time to sleep now. Things like that are going to happen, but there's so many moments of the day when there's a possibility of knowing that this moment's enough, this just moment of putting one foot down and this moment of reaching for your cup. That's all that's happening. If you look carefully, there are probably a lot more moments of that than you can imagine. Just This is the value of looking at what's going on in your mind. Then you discover that everything's really okay. You know, you're, you're, you're just kind of putting a note up on the board to the teacher, that's all. You know, or writing the note, that's all. So looking carefully, you'll, you really might notice that there's more space and more clarity and a, a, um, a, a devoidness of greed, hatred, and delusion. Maybe, you know, delu- delusion's really deep, so it's there, kind of lurking. And, and greed and hatred are also waiting to kind of catch something. But in that moment, it's not there. So really pay attention to that moment, especially if you're taking the, the precepts every day. Okay, when you notice that you might say something and you're refraining, and right after that when you refrain, how clear the mind and heart is. So I'd like to name some of the things that we gain by practicing renunciation. And so what we gain are uh, automatically are what we call these beautiful qualities of mind, called in English are the perfections of the mind and heart, called the paramis. Many of you probably know about the paramis, yeah? Uh, they're the beautiful qualities, I'll name them, generosity, moral integrity, equanimity, I'll go through the, line, the list of them. And they're called uh, this because, perfections, because they're called noble becomings. That we're becoming noble by perfecting these paramis. And, and even if we don't perfect them completely or in, in their totality, even when we 
um, you know, give ourselves over to doing our best to to make those wholesome qualities of the mind stronger in our hearts, uh, that's actually what we'll feel fulfilled enough by doing that. Maybe moments at a time we'll feel a sense of generosity, sometimes compassion, and we'll know that it's possible for this to arise again, even if we might experience the opposite of those uh, in the next five minutes or the next five hours. So these are good reminders, and so I want to go through these paramis because they're the places where we can practice at home. I was um, touched one of the first times I went to Burma when people I know, there are people who have the resources to go to retreats. A lot of Burmese people do, but there are a whole lot more of them that can't because a lot of people are poor there. But they still, the poor people who don't have the um, material resources, they, they practice the paramis and they also, um, you, you'll hear the precepts being chanted in, in communities in the morning and at night, the, the lay people and the robed ones, reminding themselves to, to not harm. And, and still, you know, in places like Burma, there is a lot of harm and, unju- and injustice taking place there. But still, a great deal of people are um, understanding and taking in the, these teachings of non-harming. So, um, the people that I usually go stay with is a family when I'm there. And what they do is they go to do practice, because they have the resources, two months every year. Two months they go to retreat. Um, the, the mother and the daughters and the son, and the father doesn't so much, but, but all of the rest of the family does. And the rest of the time of the year, they take up one parami and they practice it for a whole year. So that was very inspiring to me. So these are the paramis that I'm going to mention. I've been talking about renunciation a lot. That's one of the paramis, so I'll speak more about the others. Generosity I spoke about earlier, and this is actually the first parami, um, and it's the first talk that the Buddha usually gives to people who haven't heard the talk before. Um, so it's you can see that it's first on the list. And... and um, That's why it's so important to understand the place of generosity in the Dharma. So when we practice generosity, we let go of the pain of holding on. You know, the pain of a feeling of scarcity or the pain of um, a feeling of like, can't let go because of fear that there won't be enough. So we're letting go of fear, uh, fear of the lack, we're actually letting go of greed. This is, in, in the long run, that's what we're really letting go of, greed. One of my um, relatives, I used to babysit for her children a lot when I was a teenager, and she, she was sang in the choir, a Christian, uh, she was my aunt, she sang in the choir and was a devout uh, Christian, not Catholic, devout Christian, in, um, as a Protestant, and um, and she used to tell me about things, you know, the Parmis, because they're in all the beautiful uh, philosophies and uh, religions of the world. And one thing she said to me, I'll never forget. She said, um, "Cast your bread upon the waters," you know, something that Jesus said. And she said, "And you know what? You'll get back a casserole." <laughs> Because she experienced herself, you know, like she was a very giving woman. And um, a lot of the women were in in my family. My mother, I was raised by like a tribe of women, very strong sense of um, femininity and female strength in my family. And my mother, too, we were very poor, but... um, Whenever you know, we used to buy sacks of rice because we ate rice every day, 
and my mother would buy either a 50-pound sack or a 100-pound sack of rice, and that would last us a long time, would be less expensive. But nobody could leave our house if there were guests or even a salesperson. Those days, you know, had a lot of people come to the door. She would always put um, some rice in a, in a plastic bag or something, and just even a cup if we didn't have any fruit from the, the garden or vegetables from the garden. She'd give the little rice and she'd give to, the, to that person. And so just growing up with that, I'm sure all of you did too in your own ways, just having that example, beautiful example. So one of the paramis also is called uh, sila or moral integrity. It's that sense of non-harming. And when we, when we practice that, what do we let go of? We let go of insensitivity. Basically, it comes down to that. When we're, we're really not even, we don't even have the empathy to know or don't care to have the empathy to know is how is this action going to affect someone? Um, and so this is a great thing in, in our society today, especially in this society. Of, uh, it's more the, uh, the individual you know, it's more about individuating in this society. And in a lot of, most cultures in the world are not, are more tribal. It's more about how is the group doing? It's not about, you know, oneself. It's more about how is the group doing? And where can we, um, where can we help in, in that group to make this group stronger for survival? So there's a lot of, insensitivity in speech and behavior, um, not such a, a sense of even sometimes politeness or then there's um, letting go of uh, ignorance. We develop wisdom. And every time we're in practice and we see, the laws of cause and effect working, and we know that it's all moving along. There's this coming, that changing, and that going away. Uh, We're really developing a sense of understanding deeply the law of impermanence on a pixelated level, on a moment-to-moment level. And so there is this natural inference to, to really understand this is how our life is, too. So we're less likely to hang on to things, thinking they should be a certain way. So developing wisdom of seeing the, the impermanence of everything, to understand the, the impersonal nature of it all, and to um, also understand the dukkha nature of it all, that there's nothing in this uh, relative level of life that's going to give us an enduring sense of happiness. Uh, you know, in this relative level of life, there's, there's always these, these, this change. So even happiness goes away. And we might, sure, there's happiness that arises. We enjoy it. We know its nature. It's not going to last. So it, what we can be left with is a sense of gratitude that we had it, you know, that it was there. But even that sense goes away and something else comes up. So we enjoy those beautiful things that come up in our heart-mind, but we know we can't hang on. So this is letting go of ignorance and developing wisdom. And then um, one of the paramis is energy. It's actually one of the paramis. It's because the opposite of that is laziness, procrastination. You know, so... That's what we let go of. It's the energy to do our practice, to have moment-to-moment gentle perseverance as we do our practice. Not this kind of energy that's striving and that's trying to get somewhere, but this energy that's really just being with the present moment again and again and again as it relates to our time here in retreat. Maybe when we go home, it's related to the energy to to just stay with things sometimes when things are difficult. Perseverance. 
So that energy is letting go of laziness, procrastination. And then developing patience is one of the paramis. We let go of impatience and the the kind of inner sense of um, arrogance, entitlement, that everything has to go our way, at our pace, on our schedule. It's all about my needs. Um, So we, we let go of impatience and we're gaining patience. Truthfulness is a big one where we let go of deception. And um, this, is a, this is one of the ones of, you know, of all the, all the um, precepts that are taken. The Buddha, to be the Bodhisattva, was that could break every single precept, but not the one of telling the truth. He, meaning to say he could break every one of them and still attain Buddhahood, a bodhisattva. But if you broke the one about truthfulness, your intention to attain Buddhahood would be broken. That is why it's so important for truthfulness. I was in a retreat once where people weren't telling in groups telling the truth about their practice. I'm just making a long story short, saying how great their practice was and everything. And um, that they could stay with the breath, you know, like on the third day, just stay with the breath all the time. Uh, and I, I noticed Upandita over there just kind of looking incredulous about, you know, this was in Australia when I went to practice there one time. And um, in the evening, he gave a Dharma talk about truthfulness, and he said... <laughs> He said, how can you realize the truth if you can't speak the truth? So he's very much like truthfulness was like the biggest thing on the list. And he says, I have to be able to know your practice for you to be able to really tell me how it is with you, warts and all. Those are my words. And just be able to say the truth of how it is. Because how can you, um, how can you experience the truth if you can't stand on it in your speech. And so he made people uh, get in line. And he said, I would like you to get in line and um, come to me and tell me that you didn't tell the truth. (laughs) And he said, and to ask for forgiveness. That's for your sake. It wasn't because he was making himself into like, you know, you're a bad person. And that was what I was talking about when I said this afternoon, we really have to be able to take admonition and admonishment and to so I thought wow that was the first time I practiced with him and I thought well I'd rather I'd really really need to listen to what he's requiring and after that I was just really um, perceptive and really precise about what I told him and so We gain resolve when we let go of wavering. That's the next thing. We gain resolve when we let go of doubt and indecisiveness and um, weakness when we don't have courage. We gain loving kindness when we let go of ill will, when we let go of disconnecting from our own hearts, when we let go of resentment. And these are... um, that all the things when we can renounce that, when we can see it coming up and just know that that's not doing me any good, you know. So we, we sort of, we're holding on and it's just really sometimes a matter of just, I'm speaking metaphorically, just kind of just opening the hand or just actually seeing how it's so impermanent. It lets go of itself if we really see deeply into the nature of things. So resentment is a big one. You know, it's really hard for, for a lot of us. And speaking for myself, that's a hard one. You know, when I feel that resentment, um, it's like you think you're hurting somebody else, but you're really just hurting yourself. Somebody talked about resentment as taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You know, it just, it wakes you up. So the last one um, is equanimity, 
when we develop equanimity, we really let go of uh, preference. You know, because when we don't have it the way we want it, then there's reactivity to it. Or when we've got something that we don't want, there's another kind of reactivity to it. So we're letting go of preference during that time. Letting go to reacting um, to experience we don't like. So the last one, and the one I've been speaking about this whole time, is renunciation, the practice of renunciation. So how can you bring that home with you? I'd like to um, end with this quote by Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, who said the most pithy quote about renunciation that I've ever heard, and I remember that all the time. Because it, it's kind of like on a deeper and bigger level. It's not about the moments, but it's more like uh, kind of deep habit patterns that we have. He said, renunciation implies a strong wish to free oneself, not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. With this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. So with that, um, let's let the words settle down, dissolve if they can. Take a few moments. you for your kind attention. So please do some walking practice and uh, please do come back. Uh, We're going to have a different chant this evening, right? Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning? Okay. We're going to have the same chant tonight. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, yeah, so this is our last time to be together and chanting the evening chant, so it would be nice if you have the energy to, to join us then. Okay. So go ahead and um, go on to your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.